You're listening to Group, a podcast about mental health and mental illness. This is the show for the Warriors. I need to flip the light switch on and off 17 times before I leave a room or my family will die. The Overanalyzers. Chit, chat, chit, chat. Where are we going with this? And the people feeling all the emotions. I can feel the sadness and the mania. To the folks who feel like giving up, we're here to let you know we've been there. We all have to do things we don't want to. Like have jobs and families and responsibilities and having to be Mr. Funny all the time. To the people feeling a little off, we're here to share some insight. We need to bring our emotions to the surface and explore them. Our goal is to tell your stories, to make you laugh, and to give you an audio hug through your earbuds. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, your resident anxious person, and I'm here with group friendopist, clinical social worker Catherine Drury. Hello. Hey, Catherine. How was your How was your Thanksgiving? It was nice. I actually did a, a sort of fake Thanksgiving last weekend with my family because my brother works on Thanksgiving, and so actual Thanksgiving was really relaxing here in New York. And oh, just just you and and your husband. Yep. Oh, that's that sounds perfect. That sounds very like low anxiety. Very, yeah, very we've good had and... a lot of travel recently, so yeah, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was nice to just chill. And with us all the way from Seattle, Washington, the city with the highest percentage of library card holders per capita, and the first city to have police on bicycles, we have science writer Ian Chant. Hey, Ian. <laughs> hey, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Thank you for you like those that? lovely little factoids about uh, about <laughs> Seattle. Yeah, I I feel like every time I want I introduce you, I want to like share a new interesting fact about Seattle. And your wife is a librarian. I, I imagine everybody reading. I I feel like that's very true. I think those are both very good Seattle facts. I also feel like New York's kind of getting short shrift. You guys are both living in New York. I was York, gonna um, say, but you know, well, you know, it's a fun fact. There are no fun facts about New York. <laughs> only miserable facts. or only like serious intense facts <laughs> yeah 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 there, there are the very serious intense people <laughs> yeah exactly there there are grim facts about new york and disappointing ones you sound a little clearer because you, you have your home studio set up right now for for the listeners who have only heard you on the phone for a little while but yeah i haven't seen you i haven't seen you since your wedding which was uh, lovely and in Portland. But uh, actually, right after that, I went to Chicago to the Third Coast Radio and Podcasting Conference. Yeah, I know you'd, you'd been out there. It sounds like you and Catherine are, are both really uh, jet-setting lately. Yeah, yeah. Catherine is traveling all over the place. But yeah, I um, so I had to go to this conference, and uh, it had one of the things that I hate and fear most in the world, more even than spiders, arguably, which is uh, networking. <laughs> I do well, like in small networking groups, but I, I'm terrified of going into a space where there are lots of clumps of people who like know each other and I don't know them that well yeah. and have to go up and try and like join in conversations and like introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. And kind of sell yourself. I was walking around all day with this, like, tr- like try and have an open face, try and like, try and look approachable. Who, who, who told you to have an open face and what does that constitute? <laughs> I feel like maybe that's from years of like theater or whatever. It's just like, okay. it's just like, make sure you're 
body language is communicating oh, that you're yeah. like relaxed you know like don't cross your that, arms that does sound like something i would hear while in like a circle throwing a ball at each other yeah exactly <laughs> but uh yeah I would, and i was totally exhausted by the end of each day you know it was just like all of these networking events all day and then at the end of the day i was just like i my brain isn't working anymore i just need to eat macaroni and cheese and watch top chef i also struggle with the kind of more open just go up to people and kind of start talking about yourself or or strike up a conversation in my current job i do have to do a fair amount of outreach and networking and kind of schmoozing almost at different events or fundraisers or conferences i've gotten better at it now that i've done it for almost two years it's not my natural place. I'd much rather sit down one-to-one and yeah. have a cup of coffee. One-on-one is, is where I'm way. okay. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, where you're just having like a personal conversation with somebody and like really getting to know. It feels a lot less like fabricated and weird. Yeah. Um, Ian, it seems like you're pretty good. I remember when we were in journalism school together and we had like networking events with like local papers or stuff. I, I would just follow you around. <laughs> <laughs> You you remember correctly, you put me in a, like, room full of strangers. You put me on, like, like a, at a conference on a trade show floor. I am very much in my element. I like, you know, handshaking and schmoozing and, hey, how you doing? Um, these are these are conversations where where I really thrive. Oh, my God. If you so put jealous. me in, like, a, a place where, like, like I'm, I'm speaking to another person one-on-one or in a small group and, and we're actually, like, like really, really getting down to things and, and speaking a little more deeply, that can go off the rails um, pretty seriously. Hmm. And I think that's actually one of the things that I, that I really – like about trade shows and convention floors and things like that these these big anonymous groups of strangers there's almost no stakes like mm-hmm. if i if i go up to a person and completely botch a conversation which i've absolutely done at these things and and i think the great thing about doing that once in a, once in a while is you realize it's not a big deal you can just have have an awkward interaction with someone and just walk away with it and there's no consequences and you just go do the next thing, I think is very um, freeing. I, I needed like a shot of whatever you have, whatever like is going on in you because... I, it, I uh, mean, I think that's like realistically, that is mostly like spending 30 years as a tall cis white dude. Definitely haven't done that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to bullshit. It's definitely an advantage. Like, you know, I want to check my privilege on that point. I was sort of brought up assuming that people wanted to talk to me and want to hear about what I have to say. You just go in assuming that you're going to do this well, um, mm-hmm. and that, it, that it doesn't really matter if you do or not, because it's just small talk and who cares? That's very woke of you to acknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> props, props for that. What I was experiencing at Third Coast is a very specific flavor of anxiety that we're going to be chatting about today, which is social anxiety. Social anxiety is something that most people experience at different points in their life, but it becomes a disorder when it starts to take over your life and, you know, rule all of your social interactions with people. So uh, coming up, the author of the best-selling book, We're All Mad Here. We'll talk to her about panic attacks, awkward encounters, and her propensity for hiding in bathrooms. Single stall bathrooms are safe spaces for anxious people until someone else needs to pee and then you have to get creative. And I pretended the door was locked and was like, 
jarring the handle. Oh, help, someone help, you know, I'm, I'm locked in the bathroom. We'll also speak with the director of NYC Cognitive Therapy, Noah Kleiman, about perception versus reality in the socially anxious brain. They don't look as, as bad as they think they do in this kind of mental representation in their mind of how they think they appear. And we'll share some of our own experiences with social anxiety, including one that involves disguises and accents. That was my British accent. Thank you for clarifying. I've always loved your British accent. (laughs) (laughs) But before we start, let's all get on the same page about what social anxiety is. I'm Noah Kleiman. I'm a certified cognitive behavioral therapist in Manhattan, and I'm the director of a group practice in Manhattan called NYC Cognitive Therapy. And so we're a team of six therapists that provide individual therapy, couple therapy, and group therapy for people with anxiety disorders and depression. NOAA's practice is the regional clinic of the National Social Anxiety Center. So I asked him to break down what social anxiety is. So it's a specific fear about being negatively evaluated by other people. And it's usually linked to beliefs that the sufferer has about himself or herself. Beliefs like I'm incompetent or weak or I'm a failure or I'm inferior or I'm defective or I'm different. And so the person has this deep-seated negative belief about themselves And they're very concerned that that will become evident or that other people will see them in that negative way. So as a consequence, the sufferer tends to avoid social situations altogether. Or if they do them, they do them with a a level of dread. And so social anxiety is different than, for example, generalized anxiety, which is more just free-floating worry. Worry about all different things. Can someone with generalized anxiety, though, can they can they also have social anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people who have social anxiety, there's a what we call a comorbidity, where that meaning that the the likelihood of having another disorder goes up. So, social anxiety is most commonly associated with generalized anxiety and also depression. So, so yeah, so social anxiety isn't about being shy or being an introverted person. It's these negative beliefs that you have about yourself that you're concerned somebody else will, will pick up on. So I, my diagnosis is generalized anxiety disorder, but uh, this is something that I can really strongly identify with because, you know, throughout my life, I've regularly had these thoughts that I've been you know, working on for years about how that thing that I just said, that was stupid, or like that thing I just said was awkward. Or, you know, in the past, uh, when I've had these, these thoughts, these negative thoughts, I get really anxious that people are going to think those same thoughts about me. I spend a lot of energy trying to <laughs> make sure that people think that I'm, you know, a smart, nice person, that I'm doing a great job. Yeah, Ian, you don't seem to have this same... The same concern. I, I really don't. I'm I, I'm generally concerned with whether people think I am a nice person and doing a good, good job. I, I I like to be liked, and I I want people to think of me that way. Something I'd ask you, Rebecca, is is have you ever tried the, the sort of the like picture the audience in their underwear thing? Just just sort of like assuming that they're they're thinking the same things about themselves in in every interaction. Like they're they're also well. One thing that does help is like everybody like poops, 
and has like a sex life. <laughs> so those two things like bring people down to like, you know, human levels too. Like, I'm just like, oh yeah, this guy that I'm talking to, like he's an impressive podcasting person, but he also took a shit earlier today, you know? <laughs> And he probably made like a humiliating face when he orgasmed, you know, those two things together make me, but then it's weird. Cause then I'm picturing the person pooping or like having sex and that's not good for conversation. I think you're also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're also able to pick out something that you'll enjoy in a social situation, mm. even if there's also some worry or fear. So then you don't necessarily avoid the situation or approach it with the same level of dread that someone yeah, with social I mean, anxiety the disorder thing is, would? It's just like in these forced situations, it feels uncomfortable for me. You know, if, if somebody's introducing me to a new friend, like it's usually not awkward for mm -hmm. me. It's usually like, oh, you know, it's nice to meet you. And then we'll talk one-on-one. -on -one. It's just in these sort of like certain forced networking situations where it's really hard for me. Or if I'm at like a party where I don't know anybody yeah. and everybody's like walking around with a drink in their hand. See, I um, was, was going to ask about that, Rebecca, because I, I feel like I've seen you at, at parties where you're not necessarily around a ton of people you know and you know I don't, I, I don't know what's going on in your head and so I don't want to speak to anyone but you certainly seem like like you're having a good time and not stressed out and and so I'm curious like is there at least in your case sort of like a like oh if it's if it's up to x people I'm good and at like x plus four everything's terrible and I need to go away I think it's just if people, usually if people are broken off into different groups, usually like where mm -hmm. I have to like penetrate the group somehow. And like, I'm, I'm usually like, oh, like they're having their own little conversation and they probably don't want me to, to be a part of it. And I, I don't know. It also, I, I mean, it depends on what sort of mood I'm in, like how my mental health is, right. like how confident I'm feeling if I have a buddy there who I can sort of retreat to if I need to. And the other thing is like social anxiety and introversion are not the same thing. But the other thing is like, I'm an introvert who likes people. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I enjoy like talking to new people and learning about them and stuff. Like, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I really love interviewing people, but like, socially, like if I spend a lot of time with people I don't know that well, it's going to exhaust me. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to just need to go back and have some time by myself to like recharge, you know? See, that's, that's really interesting that you would say that. Cause I, I kind of think, I, I think I'm sort of on the opposite of the spectrum in that I'm, I'm an extrovert who doesn't particularly like people. <laughs> I like individuals a lot. I, I like most individuals I meet. I, I, I like you, Rebecca and Catherine. I like a lot of people in my life. <laughs> Aww, I like thanks. most strangers I meet. The concept of like humanity, I'm lukewarm to it best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have been feeling that way in this past year, <laughs> 2017. They, they, are, they are just catching up with me though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you a perfectionist, Ian? Because I think Catherine and I are both like type A. Both of us are sort of perfectionists. Definitely. Yeah, by by no means am I a perfectionist. Okay, that's that's interesting because it does seem like that there's there's this link between that sort of anxiety and perfectionism because mm -hmm. of the way that you want to be perceived. Noah, actually, um, the cognitive behavioral therapist that I spoke with addressed this specifically. We know that people with social anxiety tend to have really high standards for their own performance. So, for example, they tend to have ideas like like I have to sound intelligent or I must make a really great impression. And if I don't, it's terrible. 
So they tend to have these very high standards, and then when they fail to meet them, their negative beliefs tend to get strengthened. So they'll have like these underlying beliefs, like I shouldn't show any signs of anxiety at all. And then when they feel that they have, then they feel like it's very bad. And then they can become very stressed and self-conscious about it. In addition to having the, these negative beliefs about themselves, they tend to have negative beliefs about other people and about disapproval. So they tend to have ideas like um, other people are constantly evaluating me negatively or other people are very critical or um, other people are on the lookout for my signs of weakness and deficiency. Yeah, um, I I sort of understand like as somebody who is uh, just like a generally anxious person, I've had to like work hard to be like, oh, other people aren't constantly thinking about me. Like when I walk into a room, they're like much more like usually focused on themselves and there's not like this spotlight on me wherever I go. Um, You know, so even if I walk in somewhere and I have like a zit or something like that, um, people aren't like focused on the zit in the same way that I am. Uh, totally. Great, great example. Um, I think that it's then important to think about where their attention tends to go when they're anxious. So like when people are entering social situations, if they have social anxiety, then their attention usually becomes highly self-focused. So th- in other words, they're focusing a, an, an inordinate amount of attention on themselves. And this is actually kind of like a strategy that the person uses because they believe that it's important for them to observe themselves so that they can evaluate how they're performing. So the the consequence, though, is that when people are focused on themselves, they don't tend to pay enough attention to the people around them. So they don't tend to have an opportunity to observe whether or not others are actually looking at them in a judgmental way. In other words, they're like actually like not able to collect data that would disprove their idea that other people are judgmental or critical. Uh, what Noah said reminds me of this. Do you guys know brain pickings? No. I think I've seen one or two things, yeah. Yeah, it's this really great website or this really great blog where she just picks out like interesting things that she's come across and quite often they're like um science related and so oh, she, she has, has she has a fantastic twitter doesn't she yeah 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 okay great yeah that's where i'm familiar i'll link to this on the group website but so what was so noah was uh, saying reminded me of this image that she shared where there are these two people and one person is an anxious person and the other person isn't an anxious person and the person who isn't anxious their field of vision is like outward So there's like this triangle going from their eyeballs out and that's sort of like what they're seeing and what their brain is processing. Mm -hmm. And then the image of the anxious person, it was the opposite. So it was internal. So their field of vision was Hmm. like going back into their brain and that was what they were thinking about and that was what they were processing. I like that image. Um, Yeah. You know, a lot of times our, our worries or our anxieties are just worries and anxieties it's it's not reality it's our racing thoughts and so I know later we'll talk about mindfulness a little bit and mindfulness really helps bring you to that outward vision that outward focus and and bringing yourself back to the present moment instead of the yeah the hamster wheel inside your head that's just racing around on the on the the topic of that that uh image I think it's it's actually really interesting because I feel like that second sort of inward facing perspective is one that that being around people actually really helps me get away from 
if if I'm oh. if I'm like by myself for a long time or or sort of feeling isolated, then that second uh, sort of inward facing triangle image is a very familiar one to me. That's so fascinating because for me, it's more when I'm by myself is when I can like chill out and like focus on other things a, a little bit more. Yeah, when when I'm by myself is when I can sort of spiral into myself, and when I'm when I'm surrounded by distractions, I'm I'm sort of I, I'm I'm kind of gregarious almost as a self preservation technique. Um, in, in that way, like when I'm, when I'm talking with other people or interviewing people, learning about new things from folks or, or just like having a beer with a stranger at the game, I, I am not inside my own head and I'm, I'm not thinking about how other people are judging me, how I look to other people, that dumb thing I said in that meeting earlier today. I am, I'm thinking about, you know, this conversation and, and this person's life. And it's, it's very, um, it's, you know, it's, it's very distracting in, in a, a way that works very effectively for me. I can relate to that too in, in one-on-one person interactions. I mean, what I've learned about myself is that I don't really like talking about myself or I don't feel comfortable talking about myself. And so I agree with you, Ian, if it's one-on-one and I'm getting to know someone and hearing about their experiences and what's going on with them, that helps get me out of my head. It's the the larger groups where I feel like I have to perform that it's more challenging. So yeah, so I was looking for interesting folks with social anxiety to speak with for the show, and I came across someone uh, really excellent, just a top-notch anxious person, and she has a cool accent. My name's Claire Eastham. I'm an award-winning mental health blogger and now considered an expert in anxiety, and I wrote the best-selling book, We're All Mad Here, about my experiences with social anxiety. I got a chance to speak with Claire over Skype. Uh, we're really similar in a lot of ways, so I felt like I was growing down with a British version of myself, which is maybe why I like her so much. <laughs> but uh, if you have social anxiety, you'll often find yourself in uncomfortable situations that you want to escape from. You might tell a white lie, like, oh, I can't, uh, I can't make it, I'm not feeling well, or like I have to leave, I have an appointment or something. So often it works, and oftentimes it just leads to further problems that create more anxiety. So I asked Claire to share a story of a time when she told a white lie to get out of an uncomfortable situation. She told this story, which occurred just when her social anxiety was starting to manifest itself. No, I, I, you know, summer parties or sleepovers, as they call them in the UK. Secondary school just started. I got invited to, like, my first one, and I was fine. Like, ice cream, you know, talking... Mm-hmm watching a film, that kind of thing, no problem there. Like, that's fine. But they wanted to play Truth or Dare. And it was like, I can't do that. Because all of a sudden, you know, all the attention is <laughs> going to be on me and I'm either going to have to do some horrible dare or tell, like, my truth might be really boring, you know, or I, I don't know what to do. So I thought, right, I'll go to the bathroom and just lock myself in there and they'll forget about me, fall asleep, and in the morning I can just sneak out. No, no, that didn't happen at all. Like, of course not. Like, after 10 minutes... <laughs> It's like knocking on the door, like, it's, you know, is everything okay? And I thought, oh, my God, I either have to, like, pretend I've got diarrhea, which I was definitely not doing. Yeah, that's going to make it worse, yeah. 
or pretend I was locked in. So I just pretended the door was locked and was like jarring the handle. Like, oh, help, someone help. You know, I'm, I'm locked in the bathroom. <laughs> and her dad had to kick the door in. That's so funny. And they, I'm sure they were trying to figure out, like, what was keeping you in there, too. What like, was, like, are you sure you've turned the lock? Like, I'm, I've definitely turned the lock. It's not working. Like, oh, my God. And then, I, they, I mean, and then they kicked you in. They saved you. And did you have to go back and play me. play Truth or Dare with them? Or was that over? No, right I think they put the film Nothing Hill on after that. That saved uh, okay. me. But I still, that's one of my best mates. And when I actually told her the truth, she was like, bloody hell. That's so funny. At the end, just to clarify this story, yeah. I still hide in toilets now, okay? <laughs> I have not They're grown safe out spaces. It. It's still something I do if I'm like, oh, God, I need five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boy, props to Dad, by the way, because, like, kicking down a door is not easy. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was an emergency. He had to help. Yeah, so she says she still hides in bathrooms sometimes. She says she hides in toilets, which I think is really funny because it makes it sound like she's very small and she, like, <laughs> is, is in a toilet. Like a Thumbelita sort of a scenario. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's, like, a tiny little woman who's, like, peek. I can picture her, like, lifting the toilet lid and, like, peeking out. That's some <laughs> British-American uh, lingo humor there. This story reminded me of some weird stuff that I've done because uh, I am an anxious person. So, uh, Ian, you'll you'll you might remember this. So, uh, ch- feel free to chime in if you uh, if you want. But, um, so I, I was really particularly my anxiety was pretty bad uh, when I was in journalism school, and this was <laughs> so say we all. <laughs> so this was from uh, 2010 to 2011. Uh, and I applied to journalism school without any journalistic experience. So I'd never had a job in journalism. I hadn't even written for like my college newspaper, uh, but it was something that I really wanted to do. Yeah. So I had all these really negative thoughts about myself. Uh, so like Noah was saying, I was worried that, you know, people were like, why is she here? She's not, she's not a real journalist. You know, what's she doing here? Like when in all likelihood, I, I don't, I don't think anybody cared or was like thinking about my background at all. Speaking, speaking as someone who thought that way, uh, who had that actual thought about several folks in our program, (laughs) you were not among them. That's good to hear. Um, So I had to regularly check out um, equipment for our broadcast class. Uh, I had to check out like these big, uh, blue bags filled, you know, sometimes it would be like a video project. So it would be like God, these cameras and like the tripod I would, I would have to get. And so there would be like a couple mics in there. So it was all this stuff. I always really dreaded returning th- these equipment bags because like there were these guys who worked in the cage, which was like where all the equipment was kept. <laughs> And these guys... And and like any guy who works in a cage, you expect them to be very well-adjusted socially. (laughs) But for some reason, I thought that these guys were, like, just so... They were, like, cool. They were, like, cool tech guys. And they were all, like... I'm sorry. As, as someone who knew all of these guys, I really need to jump in here and ask, who? Just, like... Who who among the IT AV club at our grad school did you think was like a real I thought cool I thought dude? Andrew was really cool. I thought Alistair was really cool. They were just like they just like knew all this like I don't know, like tech stuff. I don't know. They would come into our broadcast class and give us like 
lessons on like winding cords and I would like try and pay attention and because like I was very bad at winding cords um and they were they would always just like always just have these like quippy jokes when you'd come in to return it and my mind would always be like oh my god like they're look at these hip cage guys (laughs) (laughs) look at these cool nerds in their electronics dungeon (laughs) I'd take out this equipment but then I'd always really regret (laughs) returning it because they would have to take it out and like look through everything and make sure you had returned everything correctly so I was always worried I hadn't coiled the cords correctly they would always like look at my cords and be like shh this is this is actually how you coil the cords and they'd make some joke and I I would feel like uncomfortable wait really I I literally don't recall doing anything like this in two and a half years oh really I returned I returned that I returned those equipment boxes like I was like dropping a book off at the library. I put it in the slot and walked away. Was I doing this wrong the whole time? Uh, I don't know. You were doing it in like the Ian way, whereas I was doing it. I wanted to make sure I was doing everything correctly. <laughs> yeah, as we've gone over, not a perfectionist. I, I didn't want to have to like experience the uncomfortable situation. So I'd always be like late returning the equipment and that would lead to additional bad thoughts about like how I was irresponsible for not returning it on time and I was being unprofessional. And then the the equipment guys would always like tease me too because I would be like, oh, I'm sorry, this is late. And they would be like, hey, Lady McLaterson. That sounds exactly like something Alistair would say, actually. (laughs) I'm fairly positive that's a direct quote. So, yeah, so um, this one guy who who, uh, was in charge of the equipment room, Alistair, was like, had this, you know, really good-natured sort of sarcastic tone about him. Um, But like him scolding me about this stuff made me so uncomfortable because it was like, you know, him vocalizing these negative thoughts that I had about myself, even though he was doing it in like a sweet, charming way. Uh, It was just horrible. And so I would, I would just avoid returning equipment until he wasn't there. And then I would rack up these fines and it would be like more money. And then I would feel worse. And then sometimes I would be like, oh, it doesn't look like Alistair's there today. It's safe for me to go and return it. And then all of a sudden he would like pop up. And I would like feel physically ill and I would be like, ah, here's the equipment. I think my equivalent of hiding in the bathroom at a party or sleepover is I tend to feel much more comfortable if I have like a purpose or a task that I have to do. Um, And so I'll usually like offer to help with something or, you know, assemble drinks in the kitchen or start cleaning up something that yeah, again, provides structure, I guess, to the interaction or helps me feel yeah. worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing a thing. I'm here and I'm doing a thing. Um, so also there was this, I mean, I'll, I'll tell another one. There was this period of time, another period of time in my life when my anxiety was particularly bad was when um, I was studying for a year in England. And um, I was sort of like an Anglophile before I went. I had this idea that I was going to go and that I was going to make all, make all these British friends and we were just going to be like jolly and British and, and, and happy together. My experience was that like I went and they would be friendly and nice to me at night when we were all drinking and they were, you know, like, like loose on the booze juice. But then <laughs> like when I would see them the next day, they would... Uh, ignore me when they were sober and I would you know try and say hi and they wouldn't say hi back to me which would lead to these like anxiety spirals where I would be like do they not like me like was was I awkward last night was I stupid and um so yeah so I had a lot of difficulty making friends with which the British students um which is fine now because I have my new friend Claire um but I I got to a point where I would um 
dread interacting with with British people. And so I lived, uh, I lived off campus when I was there. And so I would have to go on campus to get my mail that was in the mail room. And I would put on sunglasses and a hat before I went into the mailroom so that uh, people th- like like you were a, like you were a Carmen San Diego. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was like or I would like put on ho- like a hoodie and sunglasses and it was really uh, the sunglasses thing was like pretty silly because it was always like very overcast or raining. <laughs> right. Yeah, I had like a couple homeless guys there like holler at me and be like, "Why you why you got your sun studies on? Why you got your studies on when it's raining?" To, to be fair to those homeless guys, pretty <laughs> good like, question. Cuz I don't want people to look at me or talk to me. Rebecca, I do want to jump in here because I, I, I feel like you, you introduced Claire as the British version of you. And I, I do yeah. think I have to, it, it popped into my mind earlier, but now I have to, I have to object forcibly because the British version of you is very clearly you already. <laughs> um, and it's an accident of birth that you are not British. And uh, maybe, Catherine, I'd love for you to confirm or deny, this is the most British thing I've heard <laughs> of anyone doing ever. Quite possibly. And I've always loved <laughs> Becca's British accent. So it, went, it would go one of her a special little bit, gifts. It would go a little bit further because, um, yeah, so it also, I would talk in a British accent when I was there so that... <laughs> So that people... This is literally a Mitchell and Webb sketch right now. <laughs> so that people, like, wouldn't recognize me as that, like, that American student who was there who was weird. <laughs> so I would go and I would talk into a... So, so that they would instead recognize you as the American student who wore sunglasses <laughs> all the time and affected a British accent? I can understand that, though. Like, in high good. school... <laughs> In high school, I couldn't imagine being like a foreign exchange student and mm. having all of that attention and, you yeah. know, just being a unique person who everyone's kind of focusing yeah. on. Yeah. So I'm sure they would do an American accent if they could sometimes like those like teenage awkward years when you're like you have an accent. Nobody else does. Yeah. Um, I, I had like an alter, uh, alter ego. My, her name was Beatrice. She was my English alter ego. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'd go places as Beatrice. Uh, I would go into campus to get my mail and it was like this covert, you know, mission. And I would go in and, I, and uh, try and get out as quickly as possible without anybody talking to me. And um, <laughs> like, like this is a Metal Gear Solid yeah. mission. And I would have people like send me things in the UK from the US and they'd be like, did you get it? Did you get my letter? I sent it weeks ago and I'd be like, oh, I have to put on my sunglasses and hat and go on campus. <laughs> So yeah, so we've uh, we've talked about uh, what social anxiety is like psychologically. Um, the disorder is actually very physical as well. I asked Claire to describe some of her symptoms. The usual symptoms that crop up with me are blushing for no reason, which is really embarrassing because it's kind of like, why am I going red suddenly? And People look at you strange, and it's like, oh, God, then you go redder, and it's like this vicious cycle. So there's that. Um, I have a quite an obvious tremor when I'm stressed. So if I hand somebody something, they'll say, like, you know, you, you are, right? your hands are shaking. And I usually kind of make a joke about, oh, I've just not eaten, or you know, I've had too much coffee. Uh, pounding heart is one, always. I think mean, that's a constant in most anxiety disorders. 
the breathlessness, not so much. I find I actually hold my breath. That's a problem. Like I, I realize I've been holding my breath for ages. Yeah, um, I realize I do. I do that also when I'm yeah. like particularly stressed. I'll I'll have to like, you know, acknowledge it and remind myself to breathe because my whole body will sort of like tense up, and I'll and I'll realize that I that I'm that I'm holding my breath and sort of like biting down on my jaw, you know, and just tense. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. so bizarre. I was talking to um, a researcher in social anxiety the other day, and he calls it a safety behavior. Kind of, and it's a, it's a bizarre one because it doesn't make us feel better. You know, we clench everything, we brace ourselves for something horrendous, and you're actually making yourself feel more uncomfortable. So you're like bracing yourself for like some horrible impact or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But that, that doesn't happen. So, like, what are your strategies in the moment for dealing? I mean, like, is there anything you can do about like blushing or the tremor or anything like that? Or okay, so it depends. The tremor. I mean, I'm at a stage now where I can manage it quite well. The first thing that I do if I'm feeling particularly anxious sounds really simple, but it works, is have you ever heard of belly breathing? Mm-hmm. Where you breathe with your stomach rather than your chest. Because uh, it slows everything down, and what it does is increase the oxygen. It like, doubles the amount of oxygen in the body, which is then going to reduce all these symptoms. It's like a nice kind of big release for the body, so I do that. If tremors are really bad, I know in the past I've taken as it called the copy heater blockers. If it's really, really bad, then they'll help, you know, they do help take the edge off. For blushing, that eventually stopped. When, oh, really? Well, do you know what? I just kind of thought, it's not that I don't care anymore. It's just that I can't do anything about it. Yeah. It's almost like, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, totally. <laughs> I almost, I just thought, fuck it, I don't care anymore. Like, what more can you do? And ironically, that's what made it stop. Just like caring less about it. <laughs> yeah, but if you tell someone to care less yeah. about something, that's absurd. It's like saying, don't think about pink elephants. But it's, it's the kind of conclusion you have to come to yourself, I think. Um, she mentioned beta blockers, which is like a, a medication that I guess uh, you can take. It doesn't do anything psychologically, but like if you have really bad physical manifestations of anxiety, like, you know, Claire's tremor or a uh, super racing heart, it should stop those symptoms. So if, if it's really bad and you have like a meeting or something, that seems like that could be a good solution. Um, oh, that's really interesting. I've, I've heard about beta blockers for a long time, but I, I've, I've never quite known what they do, actually. Yeah, some performers use them as well. Huh. Oh, really? Yeah. I guess, like, if you're going to go on stage and, like, you ha- your heart rate is, like, right, up right. super high, that that's, you're yeah. You're a pianist and your hands yeah. are shaking. Oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. It's, yeah, Catherine works a lot with performers, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize that, Catherine. Yeah, I work with oh. dancers now, actually. If you're going to go on stage and you have to be in total control of, of your physicality and like you're shaking or something like that, that, that might be a, a good resource. Mm-hmm. So uh, Claire moved a few years ago to work at this big publishing house, and she had been ignoring her anxiety for about 10 years. Like me and Catherine and a lot of people with anxiety, she is a perfectionist, and she had this interview at the publishing house that she worked at for a promotion. And so she spent all this time prepping for the interview. She wrote down every possible question that they thought they could ask her, and she memorized written answers. Sentence by sentence, she memorized them. So she's like waiting to go in for this interview, and her physical symptoms start becoming overwhelming. 
that was my nervous breakdown day. The worst day of my life. Worst day and night of my life. I experienced what I now know is a panic attack. Because I remember thinking, um, well, some people think they're going to die. I think I thought I'd lost it. Like, I was just going insane. Uh, my, I couldn't lift my arms. My tongue, it felt like it was swelling up. The heart was pounding so hard. It was, I swear you could see it through my clothes. I couldn't breathe. But I thought, having social anxiety still, even though I thought I was losing my mind, like, well, I don't want to make a fuss, even though I'm potentially dying or losing my mind. So I just stood up and said in this really Jane Austen-style voice, I have the neurovirus, and I must leave at once, and bolted from the room. And I have never said the phrase at once again in my entire life. And But that's what came in my head to get out of the room. And then I ran out of the office and all the way down the street. <laughs> Rebecca, I take it back. This is the most British thing I've ever heard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cheerfully withdrawn. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's uh, it was terrifying for her at the time, but it was good because it led her to get help because she finally had to acknowledge that there was something going on. I mean, the first time you have a panic attack, as Claire was saying, like a lot of people either think that they're... Um, dying or going crazy right a lot of people end up in the emergency room yeah she said she called an ambulance um Hmm. and yeah said she was going insane and had lost it and they had needed to come get her um and and i i should i should note at this point that i'm not laughing at someone's panic attack obviously i'm laughing at at the very good line that someone (laughs) punctuated their panic attack with (laughs) yeah so i thought it was interesting that she said she couldn't lift her arms you know, during the panic attack, I've known several people who've experienced like sort of a, a sensation of paralysis while yeah. it's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying because it's hard to know what to do the first time if you've never experienced one before. So, yeah, I asked Claire what her plan is now for dealing with panic attacks now that now that she knows what they are. I'll say to myself, it's OK. You know what this is. It's happened before. There is nothing wrong. You just feel really uncomfortable and distressed. But it will end because it always does. So all we've got to do is get through the next five minutes. Then I go into belly breathing and I'll check to see if I'm clenching any muscles or anything like that. And then like tense and relax them and sit still. That's the really important thing. If you try not to run, if you bolt from the situation, it kind of proves to your brain that it was right to do that. Whereas if you can sit still, it will kind of climatize and realize you're not in any danger. And then continue with whatever activity you're doing as best that you can. So if you're in like a supermarket, like pick up something off the shelf and read the ingredients. Or if you're in a meeting, maybe like make some notes or ask a question. Because it's all proving to yourself and to your brain that you're okay. And then when it goes and dips, you get like a feeling of not necessarily euphoria, but kind of like amazing. You did that. We did that. Um, so yeah, so Catherine, um, I'm, cu- I'm curious if you have any advice for folks dealing with panic attacks, like what, what, you know, your go-to tips are for dealing with it in the moment. Well, as you've talked about different people experience panic attacks and the, especially the physical symptoms around panic attacks differently. And so a lot of it is learning what, anxiety and panic looks like and feels like to you and and what some of those initial signs are that you might 
have a panic attack. So for some people, it's, you know, they'll feel numbness or tingling in their, in their fingers or their feet, or they'll start having shortness of breath or start sweating. Their vision becomes narrowed. I'll have people think of a panic attack as kind of like a, a if you picture like a bell graph. Um, and there's usually a certain point as you're starting to feel anxious and panicky where you can intervene and use some sort of coping skill or strategy, or again, different things work better or worse for different people. Some people, you know, having a glass of water helps or stepping outside. And so there's, you know, there's a certain point as, as you're getting anxious where you can intervene and use those things. Um, once the anxiety and the panic gets to a certain level though, the only kind of way to escape it or move out of it is to experience it and move through it just to write it out right right exactly kind of write out that panic so knowing too that if that happens that you can survive it um and that you'll be okay and that dying or going crazy exactly the the anxiety and the panic will subside yeah and so just kind of learning over time what's going to work for you in that moment There are different forms of social anxiety. Some people might just experience social anxiety in situations with peers or like at a party or a bar. And then others might just feel it in performance situations, you know, like if they're giving a presentation or something like that, or they're being evaluated at work. Noah says that for therapeutic purposes, it's good to know like what your triggers are for your unique form of anxiety. It's important for people to figure out where they experience social anxiety and if applicable where they don't experience it so that they can get an understanding of what are the kinds of factors that mediate their anxiety level. For example, I worked with a patient recently who has a social anxiety about public speaking, which is a really common subtype. I asked her to break down like the different kinds of audiences and to think about would she be equally anxious in front of all of these different types of audiences or would her anxiety vary? So for example, if she was giving a talk on a subject that she knew well, like a five-minute talk in front of one person who was a friend, or what about five people if they were friends? What about if it was five people, but they were um, colleagues? What if it was five people and they were all older women versus older men, and so on, and just kind of playing with the variables to see what would cause her to feel more anxious versus less anxious That's so why. interesting. Yeah. And then how did you see it changing with those different audiences? Mm. What we discovered was that she felt particularly anxious with people who were older and people who she saw as being in positions of authority. She had a, a really kind of a deep-seated concern about being seen as incompetent. Mm. She was also very worried about making mistakes, about looking dumb. And so, and so again, with this idea of focusing very negatively on the self, she was really like focused on what she was saying and how she said it in a very self-critical way, which would of course be, be distracting to her. So after you determine, you know, what's triggering your social anxiety, Noah says a mix of behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, and mindfulness uh, is a really strong therapeutic approach. 
the behavioral therapy element usually focuses on exposure. And uh, so we addressed exposure quite a bit in, in the episode one of group. So if, you, if you're curious to learn more about that, you can go back and listen. Um, <laughs> but uh, so Noah described a particular form of exposure therapy that he often does with his patients. One thing that was, I think it's helpful is actually to create a video it, like what I'll do with people in session where we'll create like a, like a, like a live video of them, you know, doing whatever it is that they're afraid to do. For example, it could be having a uh, conversation with a date. So we might just like simu- simulate, like let's imagine that we're on a date and let's have a conversation mm-hmm. um, or the same would be true for like a, giving a talk. And then I'd, before watching it, I'd ask them to rate how they think they appeared on a, on a, bunch of different dimensions. So for example, like to what extent do they think they appeared anxious or awkward? Um, to what extent do they think that they were stuttering or to what extent do they think they were blushing? These are just some examples of the different fears that people may have. And so then we'll watch it back. And what people see is that they come across much better than they think that they actually wow. do. So this is often very powerful for people because, well, two things. One is that they'll start to see that they don't look as as bad um, as they think they do in this kind of mental representation in their mind of how they think they appear, that it's not as observable to the outsider as it is to them. So they'll think their anxiety is very visible, and um, and it's, in fact, it's just not. And the other thing that people will become aware of um, is that when they're watching themselves, that they'll have a lot of self-criticism. They'll often be criticizing themselves anyway. So, and then that becomes a, a good opportunity to practice mindfulness, turning your attention back to the present moment, but also practicing self-compassion, talking to yourself in a more compassionate, kinder way like you would to a friend. And yeah, so Catherine, you were saying mindfulness before can be very helpful for, for folks who are super in their head. Right. It's It's challenging, especially for people who experience anxiety, to be present in the moment and to to be mindful. Um, Especially, you know, mindfulness also includes that acceptance and that without judgment piece that is is hard when you're constantly evaluating the situation and what's right or wrong about it. Another element that worked well for Claire and works well for a lot of people with social anxiety is working on changing your actual thought patterns. You write down what's in your head, you know, those horrible thoughts that keep swirling around your head. And then you go through it and think, is there any proof of that? And by proof, not something that you think, oh, I just think they looked at me weird. Something that you could take before a judge and use as proof, like 100% concrete. Which is normally when I start laughing because I'm like, oh my God, yeah, that is ridiculous what I'm thinking. And then you try and spot if there are any of the cold thinking errors, like a common one is catastrophizing, like imagining the very worst possible outcome, or like mind reading, predicting, you know, you can read people's minds. I think there's about eight of them, and then you kind of rewrite it, the thought. It takes a long time, but it's really worth it. You rewrite it from a different perspective. It's the idea that you don't have to accept that thought in your head. It's not fact. But we do. And if you don't challenge them, it's going to stay there. When we experience an emotion, we're often not reacting to a situation Mm. or event itself. We're reacting to our interpretation of that event or our thoughts and beliefs about that event. 
you know, in dialectical behavior therapy, we call it checking the facts. Does how I'm feeling about the situation match the facts about the situation and the information that I have about what's happening? Mm -hmm. And I think coming up, we'll do like a, a little episode on all of these different forms of thought distortions too, and different ways to address them. Before we wrap up, I wanted to share a tool that Claire uses when she's going through a particularly anxious period of time that um, I'm sort of obsessed with. Okay, so an anxiety first aid kit is something I like to have on hand in case I'm having a very, very bad day. Or a bad few days. January, in particular, I'll have everything stocked for that. And it's just things that make me happy or make me feel relaxed. And I've got a nice little box. It's a nice way of controlling it. I kind of you know, break glass in case of emergency kind of thing. It's in mine currently, there's some really like fancy bubble bath. I've got a book that I haven't read yet. I'm only allowed to read it when I'm having a bad day. So it's almost like a treat. Uh, I've got a bar of chocolate. I've got a mini bottle of red wine. I think I've got some nail varnish and a historical documentary on Rasputin, because I'm a bit of a geek. Um, so I love this idea. And Catherine and Ian, I was wondering what you would put in your anxiety first aid kits. Uh, I think for for me, it would be a, a little bit of good quality cannabis, mm-hmm. um, a pack of uh, very strong cigarettes, um, like like re- like real nasty nicotine okay. strong cigarettes. Wait, because you're um, not really a smoker, though. I'm not. I'm not. I I gave up smoking regularly years ago um even when i did smoke i was not a a heavy smoker Mm. when i do smoke i i want to really feel it so i I want something that's just like actively Mm. unmistakably murdering me while i put it into my body (laughs) okay so what else any other any like healthful things (laughs) Um, um a bottle of water actually Definitely is is because I, I know that always helps me when I'm ha- when either when I'm I'm having a rough moment or I'm having a headache. It just sort of gives me something to focus on. Mm. Um, also, in that vein, is a, a, like a, a large heavy coin, um, just because it helps me to have something to do with my oh, hands to like and like pass with. a coin yeah, back yeah, yeah. and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much so. Um, and a uh, a Terry Pratchett novel. Oh, okay, I would have a fancy face mask. I would have fancy mini bottles of the shampoo and conditioner that are too expensive for me to buy big bottles of. Mm-hmm. Probably like some sort of like th- soothing aromatherapy candle that um, like lavender or something. Kinder Bueno, which is my favorite candy of all time. I, I, I Even if like the sugar is going to screw with my serotonin levels a little bit, I feel like some, it's worth it because it's so freaking good. A USB with some like... I don't know, some sort of like survivalist TV. I can really uh, dig on that or just uh, The Office, but that's on Netflix. I'd probably have a yoga mat to do some like stretching. Um, Good. Good for you, Kath. Oh, that's a good one. And probably along with Claire, a good book that I haven't read yet because that would really engage me and bring me somewhere else. Um, Definitely the aromatherapy stick that we talked about earlier in one of our our past episodes. Maybe a bag of trail mix (laughs) because I'm of the belief that if I'm not feeling well, protein (laughs) will help (laughs) and maybe a little chocolate in there too. Yeah, yoga mat's actually a a killer idea. I, I think I want to steal that one for my anxiety kit too. Go for it. 
So subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you download your podcasts. We'd really like it if you could leave us a review. That is super helpful. To find us, you can search my name, Rebecca Lee Douglas. Uh, You can also learn more about our show at our website, grouppodcast.com. We'll link to Claire and Noah's work there. Or you can go directly to Claire's blog, allmadhere.co.uk. She has a lot of great resources, and there's a link to her book there, which I highly recommend. To learn more about Noah's practice, visit mycognitivetherapy.com. Music in this episode is by The Losers. To learn more about Catherine's work, check out her website, katherinedrury.com. That's Catherine, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-D-R-U-R-Y.com. You can listen to Ian's podcast, Menagerie, on stories about animals and how humans interact with them at menageriepodcast.com. Also, also I should mention, I am going to be at PodCon this year in Seattle in the beginning of December. If anyone would like to talk about group at PodCon, I don't have a booth or anything, but like I will be around. So you know, look me up on Twitter and, and I will be happy to chat with you if anyone is interested. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, take care of yourself and be kind to yourself. And remember what we learned today. Things are usually better than they seem in your head. Welcome to your relaxation time. Let this wonderful 80s classic soothe you. Just a nice, warm, happy time. Happy, happy, happy. <laughs> Nothing to worry about at all. Just relax.